I've been away from you a long time. I never thought I'd miss you so. Somehow I feel your love is real. Near you I want to be. The birds are singing, it is song time. The banjo's drumming soft and low. I know that you yearn for me too. Swanee, you're calling me. Swanee. Hello, uh, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. So in this episode, I'll be finishing up my look at Babbitt, which will also complete my coverage of Sinclair Lewis, uh, f- at least for a while. Um, and yeah, let's uh, let's just jump right into it. So I think this this book, they don't always break up nicely into 100-page chunk, chunks, but, but um, you know, when I started this podcast, I thought, oh, that's a good chunk of reading to do you know, a couple times a week, but, uh, you know, sometimes they don't always fit together that, that nicely into chunks, but, but often they do. And I don't know if there's something special about that length of text, um, in the course of like writing a novel or whatever, but in this particular case, it works out really well because really the first third sets up Babbitt's as a conformist and his life of absolute conformity in the small town of America and his religion to uh, kind of mainstream middle-class American values and all that means. And the second part really deals with uh, his efforts to try to rise up in that culture uh, alongside his kind of growing crisis of faith. So his first response to his crisis of faith is to try to reinvest in that culture that he's invested his life into, which of course I think is a very, very common experience. Many of us do this. And then in the third part, the part we're going to look at today, we see him kind of turn his back on that that culture and kind of rebel against it um, and and do so in social ways, ideological ways, philosophical ways. And then on one reading, you could say he almost like retreats and goes back to conformity. But I think that's too harsh on Babbitt. I think Babbitt does grow in autonomy and when he goes back to his life his wife his job his community he does so as a he does so much more on his own terms and he does so as much more of a free thinker so in a way his rebellion works it achieves a a level of 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 intellectual independence for him so i do think this novel it's touching in especially his relationship with his wife myra at the end um but he by the end he is a different person he's still on the surface conformist but he's not willing to take it all at face value anymore he's willing to ask questions he's willing to judge it and he's willing to revisit his existing relationships from a from a different point of view so when i was first reading this i said oh he's just going to turn his back he's going to go back to conformity at the end but now that i've I've finished it and thought about it a little bit i think that's not entirely fair i think he does come away freer uh, intellectually freer uh, maybe not fully but uh, he's able to see through some of the the nonsense uh, in the world around him and in his relationships and and like for instance he gives up trying to be the most popular person in the boosters clubs and things like that that he was engaged in he gives up trying to fit in uh, so so earnestly He's going to fit in because that's just who Babbitt is, but he's not just, he's not trying, he's not trying too hard anymore. So I think he does come out of this much freer. So where we left off 
we actually saw his best friend, Paul Riesling, the one person who did f give some kind of escape from the world of conformity uh, in his life. Uh, he shoots his wife. He can't stand his wife anymore. She's in her nagging and he shoots her, almost kills her, and is sentenced to three years in prison. Um, and Babbitt kind of, this becomes the trigger for Babbitt to reject uh, the culture that he's uh, embraced for most of the novel. And to, and to reject it quite quite fiercely. Um, you see him sort of focusing on work, but you see really what he's focusing on is this quest he has of finding a... What does he call it? An angel in the flesh? He basically wants to have an affair. He just, he's made the decision to have an affair, and he starts to seek it out. But he's a, he's a middle-aged man who's been married most of his adult life, so it's pretty awkward for him. He's not like Paul Riesling, who knows knows girls, right? Paul Riesling has always been sort of cheating on his wife and flirting around with other girls. He has that experience, but uh, Babbitt doesn't. So Babbitt's very awkward in his efforts to try to get an affair. Now, he doesn't fail at it, but it's... Uh, it, it takes him a while to get there. He's really, it's really, it's actually kind of funny how he fails uh, utterly at at girls, partially because he kind of is targeting the wrong women sometimes. Like the first person he flirts with is Mrs. Mrs. McGowan, who is like the most confident person in his office. Um, but uh, like uh, later on he meets, or was it, uh, he flirts with a, uh, a woman, a neighbor woman, Loretta, uh, who he jokes with her being uh, a widower, and he kind of awkwardly tries to uh, have a relationship with her. It doesn't really go anywhere. Um, um, and he talks about, he talks about, I mean, he, th there's some kind of subtle things in these conversations, but like, for instance, in this one, he talks to how he's always lonely without his wife kind of saying, oh, my wife's not here. I think she's gone for much of this period where he's uh, trying to flirt with these women. But he talks about dreaming about his wife and things like that, and that doesn't really help her. Um, but but he kind of deny, he kind of denies that he's doing this at first, but eventually he does admit that he is kind of actively seeking out an affair. Now, while he's doing this, he, he visits Paul, and he tries to maintain that friendship with Paul by seeing him in jail, but he sees Paul as sort of a dead figure by this point, you know, in three years I don't know three years in a 1920s prison probably was pretty rough um, but nevertheless he you know he sees Paul sort of dying dead to the world and this causes Babbitt to lose his faith in the world um, and lose his sort of investment in that world um, now the next woman he sort of meets that he tries to make a pass on is, is a named woman who's very important for the rest of the book because this is the woman he'll end up having an affair with and her name is Tannis Judish uh, J-U-D-I-Q-U-E Judish I think and she's a widow so she's actually a pretty good match for Babbitt in age she's uh, they're able to f uh, f talk about music he's um, you know he, he takes her around so I think he's um like, I think she wants to, like, get an apartment. So he takes her around. He's a real estate guy, I remember. And he takes her around to see different apartments and is flirting with her while she's doing this. And at the, after their meeting, he does get her an apartment. After her, their meeting, he's kind of upset he did not pursue the flirtation a little bit farther. He regrets it, but he, he has to move on with his life, right? He missed his chance. Um, then the next woman he tries to make a pass on is Ida, uh, Ida Putaket, who is his manicurist. And 
It's it's really funny how he justifies like going to see her. He kind of like says, "I'm not gonna go to my barber anymore. He's not doing that good of a job." And he's using, this is just an excuse to go see this this young woman. Um, and this is more of a sad uh, case because she's she's quite young. But he flirts about her skills as a manicurist. Eventually, asks her out to dinner, and he actually does try to seduce her. He actually does is a little more forceful in his efforts to sleep with Ida, but it it fails pretty badly and it's pretty sad um and he finds out she just sort of endures him because you know and, and and kind of was using him just for a dinner out you know uh, not really interested in him physically or, or emotionally or anyway just just going out right just uh just a way to get a free free dinner and when he realizes this he's pretty hurt by it but um and then he ends up kind of it's so kind of awkward and cringy to read it because he, he ends up like lecturing her about how you know she's dealing with her boss and it's all kind of embarrassing um and she doesn't really want to listen to it and he kind of comes off as like a cranky elder figure not not a romantic interest at all so that one fails um and with this he begins to doubt his uh, rebellion and he also dreads his wife's return because his wife has been out helping her uh, sister or something with an illness and he kind of says well why not just enjoy the life I had my life was fine why do I need to pursue this uh, uh, these relationships and why do I need something more why can't I be happy with this but at the same time he's really dreading his wife's return as kind of a return to the life that was beginning to make him unhappy and he decides he wants to go to Maine to find peace and he makes up some excuse. I think he lies to his family about where he's going. He thinks he says he's going to New York on a business trip, but actually, he decides to go back to Maine, where he was earlier on a earlier in the book, on a trip with Paul Riesling. And he, you know, he lies to his wife about how he's going there. And while there, he has this dream of going to the wild. And this is just a really fascinating chapter, because he he begins to get fascinated with this man named Joe Paradise, who he sees as like the, the apotheosis of like outdoorsman, even though he's just like a just like any other guy who is just happens to be working as a tour guide in Maine. It's just his job, and he actually doesn't know the wilderness that well. He's not that keen on it, doesn't like it. It's just a job for him. But Babbitt sees in him like, the, you know, this is maybe the man I should aim to be, he thinks. He, this is the guy who's really a frontiersman. He's not so conventionalized. He really lives on the frontier. And he actually has these dreams of going wild. Um, and he, so he ends up hanging out with this guy, Joe Powder, and Joe Paradise, sorry. And Paradise just is, you know, sees it as a job, of course, and doesn't really take Babbitt that seriously. Um, and But he learns that Paradise is basically a hypocrite. I think, what is it, he, he's like, what kind of flower is that? And Joe Paradise just says, well, that's like a blue flower. <laughs> it's like he doesn't actually know the wilderness. He's not that tuned to it. Uh, or at least he doesn't understand it in the way Babbitt expected him to understand the wilderness, you know. You should be able to. You should know what all these trees are on that leaf. Like a Boy Scout, he, he's not a good enough of Boy Scout, and this uh, frustrates Babbitt. Um, and he finds out that mostly Joe Paradise just sort of hangs out in his cabin, uh, doing his own thing, and he's not really of the outdoors. So he returns to Zenith, and uh, and there's another really interesting conversation that sort of shakes how he understands things. And he meets Seneca Doan on the train. Seneca Doan was an old classmate of his, but he had kind of become, uh, he was on the other side of the political campaign for mayor earlier. He, Seneca Doan was sort of on the side of the uh, of the common people a little bit more, and 
and Babbitt representing the business class. He always wanted a good business administration. That was his politics. And so he sided with the enemy, with the other side who won, the more conservative candidate. But again, he's still friends with Seneca Doan, and he's the only person on the train. And I love this train stuff because, you know, when we fly by, we go by plane, travel by plane, we're only with people for a few hours. It's not really a social experience. You might talk to the person next to you, but probably not. Uh, it's just, you just get there. Maybe you sleep. Do you do your work on your laptop or whatever? But, um, but with trains where you're there for maybe a couple days, you do seek out people maybe you know or want to talk to because it, it's going to be a long trip without it. And there are social carts, right? There's like the smoking train, smoking car, and the dining car, and a car and a car for games and drinks and things like that. So you want to have someone um, that you know, and he finds Seneca Doan. So that's the person he goes and seeks out talking to. Um, now he doesn't want to be seen as radical. I sit next to him, but it was the only person he knows, so he accepts that. Uh, and they talk politics, and he finds out Sene Seneca Doan doesn't like resent Babbitt at all, or is not mad at Babbitt for running, you know, helping his opponent in the campaign. He seems pretty chill about it. Seneca Doan actually comes off really, really classy in this scene and really honest. And he actually reminds uh, Babbitt of how, like, back in college, I was a conservative. And you were the liberal. You were the one with liberal ideas and, and, and kind of what's changed. He just doesn't really lecture on him. He just sort of points, points it out. Uh, and this gives him something to think about, I think, about, you know, the flexibility of his identity and his loyalties. And, and what was it that made him, you know, give him the values he had? It wasn't that he was born with them or they weren't intrinsic to him or his upbringing. They were products of his life in Zenith and his job and his family. And, and those things that seem to pull him towards that conventionality. Um, so anyways, he gets back and he goes to see, see Zilla. Zilla was the wife of, of Paul Riesling, who was shot. And he actually begs her sort of and says, why don't you go ask the governor for, to pardon Paul? And she says, no, he must suffer. She actually says she has a new religion. And as part of this religion, people must suffer for their crimes, suffer for their misdeeds. And she thinks, because she says very frankly that Paul must suffer for what he has done. And so he's kind of give you know, there's not much he can do for Paul at this point. So, so Paul sort of flees the story and he, he you know, he's not going to get his friend back. He, you can tell he's kind of desperate for some kind of connection. Uh, he's kind of lonely. His wife's gone. He's not making any, having any luck with affairs. You know, he's got only got those false relationships. I think that's another interesting thing about the Seneca Doan conversation is Seneca Doan, Seneca Doan could have been a friend to him based on their conversation. He seemed open to being a friend with Babbitt, but Babbitt's you know, network in Zenith made him made him come out as his political opponent. And so he's he's being pushed into these loyalties that aren't based on actual lived experiences. Uh, so he's only got like these false friends left without a family and without without Paul. So poor him. Also, Ted goes to college. Now, Ted and Babbitt don't have the best relationship, but um, but he gets pushed back basically to conventional thinking, it looks like. he's He does sort of end up going back to the Boosters Club meetings. He defends Doan in one conversation, though. So he has changed a little bit. He's a little more independent. And we see this really come to a head in the strike. And that's chapter 27. It's a really important chapter in which a streetcar strike 
uh, hits Zenith pretty hard and tears the community apart. So the community is divided on the strike, divided on the goals of the strike. It's, you know, this was an era of a lot of labor tension in America and, and uh, rising socialism. You, of course, had the Wobblies uh, act. Well, they were, I guess they were on their decline by this point, but, you know, it was a, a you know, not like the 30s and the pre-World War One era, I think, but there, there was, I guess, the post-war strike wave, and then maybe that's that's kind of what this is part of. Um, but, you know, it is Gilded Age or late Gilded Age America. So very, very uh, intense labor politics. And, poli you know, strikes that tended to divide communities up, really, you know, that involved the whole community. And this is certainly a case of that. Um, and also there's violence, so that's dividing the community as well. Um, and Babbitt actually starts out against the strike, but he changes his views on the labor issue. Uh, he actually comes off more, more, more liberal on, on the labor issue. Um, well, liberal is the word they use, but, you know, more, more leftist, I guess, we might say today, given that the liberals aren't very leftist in our days. Don't want to confuse the language, but, you know, the word liberal is used here to refer to people that are more, more left-wing, I guess. But he changes his view, and it's like a test of his values, in a way. When he finally hears about, like, what the workers were making and how they're being treated, he does change his view and say like yeah maybe they should be treated better they maybe they have a point here it's like yeah i'm against violence and against radicals who are want to overthrow capitalism or whatever but but maybe we should listen to these workers a little bit more and this just offends his friends so his friends who are all boosters remember they're all in that booster circle they are pretty disgusted with his uh his really uh uh moderate pro-labor views he's he's not like on the streets with the strikers or anything like that he's not crossing the street uh what's that jack london story where the the economist goes across the street to participate in like labor stuff and then goes back to his life like literally crosses like the goes the other side of the tracks and becomes a labor radical and then returns to his bourgeois life uh, if anyone remembers the name of that story let me know um it's something about crossing, like crossing the street or crossing the road or, or whatever. But um, he doesn't go that far. But he does have moderate pro-labor stances. Even this, though, offends his friends. And the strike is eventually beat, though, and that kind of ends that issue. Um, so now we get to the affair. So we got about three, two or three chapters, maybe just two chapters, really, where we see Babbitt finally get the affair he was seeking and he gets it with uh, Tannis Judice. So she actually comes over to uh, Babbitt over repairs. So ba Babbitt's like the real estate agent, right? So he's the one to go to about these repairs when the landlord doesn't deal with them. And instead of like fighting with the landlord, he goes over and repairs the leaky roof himself. Um, and then they end up sitting and talking pretty much all night. It's uh, pretty wild. He ends up staying all night they're smoking and drinking and talking about various issues they really bond um you know they agree on many things and they even start to talk about more intimate affairs and it's at this point that the affair begins um and he starts to see her more and more and with this affair he totally changes his peer group and he gains confidence he's much more assertive in his freedom if you will he, at least on the surface even though in a way he's just kind of falling into another crowd that's one way to read this certainly that he's just sort of falling into another crowd here and tanis is the one who brings him into that crowd but i, I do want to 
say, you know, he does seem on the surface happier and freer and more excited about life. He feels bad about Myra. He fears she'll know and fears she's going to find out and that's going to ruin his life. But um, but I think Myra goes again to see her, to help her ill sister. I, I forget all the reasons she's gone, but, you know, her being gone for a lot of time allows him to play around a little bit. And she's going to be gone for a long time now, helping her ill sister. And so Babbitt basically starts to hang out more and more with this bohemian, starts drinking a lot. So he starts like drinking every day and waking up drunk and having hangovers and all the basically kind of almost becomes an alcoholic or you see some signs of him falling into alcoholism and gets drawn into this new life. And he gets to starts to get a reputation uh, as someone who's hanging out with his bohemians and he fears his reputation. He gets seen drunk one day with Tannis, and he's fearful that people are going to talk. It's very much like Main Street. Even though Xena seems to be a much bigger town than Gopher's Prairie, there's still this concern of how what his reputation is and how it'll be seen in the community. And because he's seen drunk, he starts to get worried about that. But it's at this point, he gets invited to join the Good Citizens League. And it's like almost like the town is trying to pull him back in and reform him he's like he like becomes he becomes the target of the reform efforts of these social groups right so we got like the the good citizens club is this one but there's all these other the elks club and the lions club and the boosters clubs all these things perhaps were part of but the good citizens club is much more a moral reform type of society part of that progressive era movement that was really all about personal behavior and I think, you know, in many ways, we're, we have so much to learn from the 20s because not only do we have like the inequality and the labor conflict and the, the, the class conflict that, that they had back then, we also have the Earl, urban rule divide and the culture wars of that. We have the politicization of personal choices, and the, you know, as that's coming, kind of springing out of the culture wars, right? Whether it's gun ownership or abortion or religion, right? Or, you know, attitudes towards woke culture or whatever there's clear geographical divisions uh, in these you know in these division in in this in these conflicts this culture conflict today and at the time you know we think of like the scopes monkey trials maybe the best example of that where it really was not just evolution versus creationism it was like the urban versus the rural new york versus kansas you know the values of the city the values of of, of a modern industrial capitalist culture against the values of small town America, of the religious. And I think we're very much still in these culture wars. And we're also in this progressive era in a way, even though we're not getting like the labor reforms of the progressive era, you know, unions might be increasingly pushing for that kind of thing. But that's when instead we get like a lot of moral reform, right? Like, you know, uh, sustaining the war on drugs or the um, attack on like, smoking right and maybe there's connections with the covid thing with uh you know personal behavior being being politicized and being criticized you know being criticized and so not only is there the culture wars there's like moral judgment uh, about people who don't conform to society right so in the progressive era you had all these movements like uh that you know temperance is a big one of course leading of course to prohibition but you also had like anti-prostitution leagues and and uh, criticisms of working class culture and behavior, uh, especially with drinking was maybe the, the clearest example of that, but it happened in other ways too. Um, and, I, and you know, this is kind of some curse of American capitalism because it happened in the antebellum period, it happened again in the 20s, and I think it's happening again, again now.
Um, unfortunately, Babbitt's not really able to commit to not going to see Tannis anymore. He, he's hot for her. The affair's going well. It's making him happy. It's He's getting new friends. And it's giving him something. So he turns his back on the Good Citizens League instead focuses on his bohemian lifestyle. And every once in a while he'll say, like, I really got to stop seeing Tannis. But he has that same convic- conviction for this that he does for, like, his efforts to stop stop smoking. It's like, yeah, it's, it's not going to happen. All right. Um, so now we get to the climax of, of the book. So Babbitt, Mrs. Babbitt, Myra Babbitt, returns to Zenith. And um, he continues to see Tannis, but he starts to feel more bad about it. And he tries to make up for this by being a more attentive husband. He comes in with the flowers, come, you know, starts taking Myra out more seen with her more but he doesn't stop seeing Tannis yet um, he's just trying to be a better husband um, but eventually he does he he has to break off his relationship with Tannis and she just takes it with in stride and there's one point where he actually tries to talk to her again and she's very indifferent to him so it's um you know that's how it goes down sometimes right you know I don't know if I'd call Tannis a scorned woman I, it might just be that she didn't see in Babbitt what Babbitt saw in Tannis in a way right that that happens a lot in relationships where you have one person who's more into the other and they might be happy together but one person is more into the other and then if they break up one person is more hurt by that breakup and maybe more eager to go back or feels they've lost more Tannis certainly doesn't seem to feel she's lost that much uh, in losing that little affair she has with Babbitt but Babbitt made a big deal of it but nevertheless he he does commit to reinvesting his relationship with Myra um, and and he says I just gotta live my life I gotta live my life properly um, and at this point like the Good Citizens Leaks comes back and here's where when I was rereading this I thought yes this is where Babbitt declares his independence in a way where he it's not just returning to the norm because old Babbitt would have joined the Good Citizens League and been very active in the politics of the Good Citizen League you know attacking smoking and drinking and uh, other kinds of sins, publicly giving speeches. That's what old Babbitt would have done. Um, but actually, he goes to a Boosters Club meeting. He still goes to these clubs, but he goes to the Boosters Club meeting and he hears an anti-immigrant speech and he kind of says, this is nonsense. This speech was a bunch of bullshit. Um, and, and that's why I think he's really sort of gaining some more... his own philosophy. There's the ground here is for him to think for himself, which is where we want Babbitt to be and where we all want to be. So the answer isn't turning our back on society entirely. It's it's facing society um, on our own terms, I guess, and with honesty and and reflection. And and Babbitt's starting to get there. And he actually refuses to join the Good Citizens League, which is another great uh, moment for him. It's maybe the most heroic moment here um, in the climax of the story. But then we get the the Myra's crisis. So Myra falls sick, and she gets sick, and eventually she's like, she's like, oh, I'll be fine. But Babbitt says, no, we got to call the doctor. And the doctor comes in and says, oh, this doesn't feel good, or stomach's all hard, and I don't know quite what it is. So he gets the cons- cons- consult, and the doctor comes for the consult, and says, she has appendicitis, acute appendicitis, appendicitis. How's that pronounced? You know, swollen appendix infection of the appendix and she's in dire need of surgery like she has to have surgery soon and 
and Babbitt's like, well, I'll bring her to the hospital in a few days once we arrange things. And they're like, no, she's going now. The surgery is going to be in like a 25 minutes or she could die. And so, of course, this, so the car comes and picks her up, takes her to the hospital and, and she survives. Thankfully, she survives the, um, the surgery. And there's a really emotional moment where Babbitt sits down with her and he like repledges his love for her, his relationship, his commitment to her. And it is quite um, um, beautiful. Unfortunately, now I got to kind of go back to what I was saying before, because I think there was a space for Babbitt to get his independence and he started moving towards it. But I'll just tell you how at the end of chapter 33, I'll read it. Uh, then did Babbitt okay so someone comes back to him talking about the old good citizens league again and then, then did Babbitt almost tearful with joy at being coaxed out instead of bullied at being permitted to stop fighting at being able to desert without injuring his opinion of himself ceased utterly to be a domestic revolutionist he patted Gunch's soul, soul shoulder and the next day he became a member of the good citizens league Within two leagues, no one in the league was more violent regarding the wickedness of Seneca Doan, the crimes of labor unions, the perils of immigration, and the delights of golf, morality, and bank accounts than was George F. Babbitt. And that, that's got to be the most heartbreaking, tragic few sentences in the entire book. It's, it's so sad to see how far he's gone, come. And it's not that he should have just turned his back entirely on the culture of Zenith and just become a radical. That's not the path for most of us, but... Maybe it should be. It would be nice, but it's not the path for most of us. But there was a space after he breaks up with Tannis and says, maybe bohemianism is not for me. When he's like, okay, maybe I can just think for myself and engage with this community I'm a part of on my own terms. And then Myra falls sick. He reinvests to her. And then why does he have to go back? Why does he have to abandon it all? I don't know. I, I, I really don't know. And, and But basically, that's how the book ends. And we get some wrap-up showing Babbitt kind of where he began. And the full circle of it is kind of sad. It's it's kind of like Ulysses in that way. I guess Ulysses was right around, right around the same time as this, you know, where um, Leopold Bloom sort of goes on his adventure, but always circles back like a, like a planetary body back to where it starts. He starts, right? You know, Stephen Dedalus escapes. He can't. Um, Babbitt can't escape either. Well, I get a sense Paul, when he gets out of jail, might. Um, Zilla seems to have escaped. Um, Tannis was already sort of free. Um, but Babbitt couldn't escape for whatever reason. And there, there's some more details here about his son's relationship with his girlfriend and them getting married and all that. But it's, it's a rather... There's sad elements here, but there's hope, I think. There's still a little bit of hope in who knows where Babbitt can get him. I guess is he'll just end up being a conformist forever. That's why there's even that term Babbittry to refer to George Babbitt. But let's, I just want to suggest that maybe Sinclair Lewis is leaving us just a little bit of hope um, that Babbitt could be freer um, at the end than he was at the beginning of the book. So, Anyways, that's my read-through of Babbitt. I've really, really enjoyed this book. I think it's my favorite of the Sinclair uh, Lewis books I've read. Um, 
So um, that's that. So um, let me know what you think about Babbitt. Share any thoughts. You can send me a tweet uh, or an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Next, I will be reading... I think I'm going to do Ben Franklin, to be honest. The Library of America publishes two volumes. They're, it's weird. They numbered them as one. Usually each volume is numbered separately, but the Ben Franklin is like an A and a B. I think maybe they early on published as one book, but it was too thick, so they split it up into two. One is like the autobiography, and the other is his earlier writings. Yeah, this is early writings, and then the other volume is... Uh, so this goes up through 1775. So this next volume is his autobiography and, and his later writings. But for now, let's just look at his early writings, because that's what I have with me. It's... Um, yeah, the stuff before the American Revolution. But there's a lot of good stuff in here. This is wonderful. Ben Franklin is just amazing. Um, such a such a rational voice. It's um, and so so independent and and so prophetic in so many of his ideas. I think there's a lot to to love in the Ben Franklin. Um, story so i know i wanted to get back to the civil war writings but i might hold off on that for the summer um for now let's let's do that so that will be seven episodes maybe so a little not not too long of a series but so much fun stuff here so that's what i'll start with so we'll be looking at his stuff he wrote when he was a little kid in in uh, in boston um, like his the the that the silence do good letters where he was trolling his brother's newspaper as a at 16 years old it's wonderful um some of his earlier philosophical writings i think he's i don't know if i'll get to it in the next episode but he's got uh the busybody letters his uh, a great little dissertation on pulp paper currency great stuff so um yeah so anyways, that's what I'll be doing next. Um, as, as always, thanks for listening, and I'll, I'll see you next time as we jump into Ben Franklin's works. Swanee, how I love you, how I love you, my dear old Swanee. I'd give the world to be among the folks in CIX. I even know my mammy's waiting for me, praying for me down by the Swanee. The folks up north won't see me no more when I get to that Swanee. Oh.